Okay, this morning, uh, we're gonna be in Mark chapter 13. This passage of scripture uh, teaches really different than many other passages of scripture in Mark. It is one of the longest single narratives in the gospels. It is 31 verses. Um, And for some of you, it's like, so, 31 verses. For some of you, it's like, okay, yeah, I've seen you preach too. Uh, I know 31 (laughs) verses. Um, Here's here's what I'd love to ask as we go through this. Uh, I'd love to ask, this is actually gonna take a little bit of work on all of our part to lean in um, to really enter into the history of what was happening then because the beauty of this is revealed through the context. So we're gonna do a lot of context work here and then we're gonna bring it all in the very end to like what does that actually mean for us today. Um, and this is really gonna be one of part two. I'm gonna uh, teach next week on the last six verses of Mark chapter 13 as well. So like part one of, of, of two, of, you know, that go kind of hand in hand. And so... Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna pause and, and just slow down and pray, and then we're gonna enter right in together. And so, y'all ready? Are you ready? Are you with me? I'll call you out. Just kidding, I won't do that. Um, we see you online, and if this is your first time here, six verses next week, come out for that too. It's great, so um, here, let's pause. God, your presence is with us. <sighs> your love is real. This is not just historic, it is present in this moment. So Holy Spirit, have your way in this place. Jesus, you're the center, you're the center of this and so we look to you, we long for you, we wanna see you and know you. May your word come to life because of your spirit, in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. All right, so um, scene one in Mark chapter 13. Um, If you have been here, you know that we have been in this place leading up to the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's actually perfect that being in Mark for over a year and a half, we land here leading through the Lent season where it's Passion Week and Jesus is in the temple. Um, and, And so that's scene one, Jesus is in the temple and moving out of the temple. And so I'm gonna go through this um, one verse at a time for the first couple, and then we're gonna go through it in chunks. But let's just set up the context of this passage of scripture, understanding that this passage of scripture here, um, I just wanna name this. As we go into this, it is either one of those chapters that creates all sorts of conspiracy theories and angst around the end times, or you just skip it and go to chapter 14. And, uh, and so there are two groups. We're actually going to do neither. And so right in verse one, it gives you the location of where we're at, and here's what it says. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. And it's such an odd verse, isn't it? Uh, they're leaving the temple, uh, and it's almost as if there's a metaphorical fire behind Jesus because Jesus was being like debated against. They were trapping him, trying to cause him to do something. They, they want to kill him. The religious leaders want to kill him, and they kept losing debate after debate against the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And it was this moment where Jesus cleansed the temple, judged the temple, walked out of the temple, and as he's leaving, his disciples look back and go, huh, it's really pretty. It's so strange. Um, but they actually did that for good reason because this temple in scripture, the ancient Jewish temple, Herod's temple, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it was considered the most magnificent building in the ancient world. In fact, King Herod started the construction of this temple before Jesus' birth and here he is, it's still being constructed 40 years 40 years later. So this is, uh, and King Herod, a, a Roman provincial, ki- like providential king in that area, uh, would actually, this was a part of his MO, which was building big things, building buildings to be able to point to his own glory. And so some of that's still alive today <laughs> across our world, but that is what he did. And so what's really interesting about that is um, Herod really, um, through this, it kind of, didn't just lift up the name of God, it perpetuated the name of King Herod. 
in, in essence, Rome. And when you think about this disciple going, what beautiful stones. When you think about like stones or like bricks, don't think bricks. These bricks were the size of like school buses. That's how big they were. And, and the courtyards could fit thousands of people, acres and acres and acres. And back then the walls were about 200 feet high and that doesn't sound big to us today, but then it was just not even heard of. And so this, this was a massive spectacle in the ancient world. And it was considered a permanent fixture until the return of their Messiah, the ones who didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. And so the disciples couldn't see clearly. Um, beautiful to the eyes was this temple, but Jesus created imagery that it was actually a bar- like a barren fig tree. Looked beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, it was empty. It was like a sinkhole. And so they, 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 this building pointed, in a sense, people to God, but it really pointed people to Herod's ego. And uh, I just want to name this real quick. This past weekend, I wasn't here because I was with our teenagers up at camp. I'm feeling good. Um, it actually was uh, such an amazing experience. And those of you who were, are here today and are hearing this that were a part of that weekend um, I love you, we love you, we believe in you. Um, it was significant. I got up Saturday night to speak the last time at the retreat, and I had played broomball all day. And so I had a pounding headache, a bruise on my butt. <laughs> I couldn't lift my arm up too high. My knee was swollen, but my heart was so, so full. It just felt right. And one of the things we emphasize, and this is why I wanted to bring it up today for those of you that were there to remind you, one of the things that we emphasize was this idea of taking inventory of what really matters. And listen to this as we go into this text a little bit deeper. Um, Don't be easily impressed with worldly success. Like Herod, many will succeed at, at things that are beautiful to the eyes but are eternally empty. And so as followers of Jesus, one of the invitations is don't be easily impressed by the things that are magnificent in this world but eternally empty. Enjoy sports. <laughs> but don't be too enamored and easily impressed with, with the stardom around it. And enjoy, um, you know, uh, skylines. But don't be too easily impressed with things that won't stand the test of time. And in this case, in a sense, this is Jesus' invitation. And in verse two, it says this. This is Jesus responding. Jesus says, do you see all of these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And so this is a a prophecy uh, that Jesus is giving that this magnificent thing that seems like a permanent reality, this beautiful man-made thing is going to be destroyed. Uh, How about that for an anticlimactic moment? Disciples are walking out, birds are chirping. Jesus just won some debates. Look look how pretty that is. It's all coming down. (laughs) It's all coming down. Very, very anticlimactic in that way. Um, 40, here's what's interesting. 40 years later, if you know history, and stay with me. This is the work on our part as we go through this. There was a siege on Jerusalem, and General Titus and an army destroyed the temple. And there's a line in here that's so interesting because it said not one stone was left on another. And what's interesting, in the fire that consumed Jerusalem, but the temple, there was actually gold that was around these walls and in different parts of the temple, and the gold literally melted into the cracks of these stones. So General Titus, the son of the Caesar, um, who would one day become Caesar, he ordered his army to lift every stone off of another to get the gold from in between. And it was that specific. Little did they know, in decades before that happened, that was in AD 70, decades before, Jesus pointed to the temporary nature of the temple that so captivated people And I believe that Jesus still does the same thing today. If we have eyes to see it and if we have ears to hear, and I'll I'll begin with this question. What captivates the world's attention but in the end is eternally empty? Church family, don't be fooled. 
Don't be fooled. So, the next two verses set up the entire chapter. And here's what the context, this, these next two verses do. The context protects our interpretation, our reading of this. So that's why we, we don't, we're, we're very shy to pluck one verse out of the Bible and then just build around that with our own thoughts. This context really matters. And it's in verse three through four, and here's what it says. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, Opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? And so they asked Jesus questions. And, and I just wanna name this, that everything after this moment is an answer to these questions. Everything Jesus says through verse 31 is an answer to these questions. And so they're asking the questions we would all, if you're gonna hear about that, that, oh, look how beautiful the stones are. It's all coming down. When? When? And how will we know it's coming, right? Who would wanna know the answers to those questions if that, if that was you? Something was gonna change your life. I wanna know when. I wanna know what. And so why is this important? Here's why this is important. Because many take Jesus' word here in this chapter out of context. And in fact, um, many people can make this, chapter 13, about the end of all things. All sorts of conspiracy theories. And um, I mean, I think about the, you know, we can sort of glamorize this end times thing and create all sorts of fear and conspiracy around it and this whole idea of left behind in the 90s, you know, that creeped in and shaped our theology in some very destructive ways. Matthew 13, or Mark 13 can be very taken out of context here. And so in context, it is clear that this chapter is about the temple destruction 2,000 years ago. So as we go into this, I want to just mention this. Even if this passage was about the future, meaning our future, I just want to name that Jesus' vision for our future and for the future of the world is not destruction of all things, but renewal and healing of all things. When we read about the gospel of Jesus Christ, sometimes we can think, and I've said this before, like it's an evacuation plan that one day, if we just get through, we'll all be just taken away and we'll be out of this dark world just so it can sort of melt away on its own. No. The kingdom of God is an invasion plan. And the inbreaking kingdom of God, breaking into our world, has already begun. And it begins in the hearts of human beings. It is the, the, the kingdom of God, the, the perfect expression of the kingdom of God is anything dark and destructive in this world is put to right. And in this time, the, which a lot of theologians call the already not yet kingdom of God, we get to taste it, but not experience it in its fullness. But history is moving towards a climatic moment in Revelation 21 where all things will be made new, heaven and earth, this beautiful marriage and so this is a powerful context. Whether we look at this passage in the future from now or 2,000 years ago, that is where human history is headed. And so I'm seeing two now. We, we move from this moment where these questions are asked and Jesus responds. And, it, and it, uh, we're gonna look at verses five through eight and they are now moved out of the temple and they're on the Mount of Olives and there are three warnings that Jesus gives. And so Verse five through eight says this. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. All right, this is a hairball. Um, one of the warnings Jesus gives is this. Watch out that no one deceives you. This is true of human nature back then, but it's also true of human nature today. And, and here's what Jesus is warning them 
of. In the chaos of the first century, many will rise up in the chaos. Chaos is like a vacuum. And many people will step into that vacuum. And now, I think more than ever, because everyone has a platform. That didn't used to be the case. But now we can create our own platforms in social media and and in life. And so many will rise up in the chaos and they will make predictions of the end of the world in the name of Jesus. Nothing's new. One theologian wrote this. He said, many contemporary popular religious prophets lose their credibility under the criteria of reading the signs of the times that Jesus set forth. With the rise of every cult, the declaration of every war, the announcement of every earthquake or famine, a new generation of prophets who take the name of Christ is born. Put to Jesus' tests, they cannot survive. And if we yawn when they speak, they will not survive. And so chaos in this world, and we've experienced a lot over the past few years, it will be a vacuum that brings lots of voices to the surface. And Jesus said then, and I think it applies now, be careful who you listen to. Not like who you listen to, who you listen to. So what about wars and rumors of wars and natural disasters? Because that's like, it seems like it's everywhere, right? But I just want to point out this out, that wars and natural disasters were a thing. They're a thing now. They were a thing then as well. In fact, the war that we're talking about, the siege on Jerusalem, is considered in one of the worst wars in human history. And we'll learn more about that in a minute. And, the, and uh, there were many big earthquakes. The, one of the most famous ones was in AD 63, where Pompeii was the city. This famous city was completely destroyed, obliterated. In that, in that time. And, um, and so, when you hear of these things, now you can like, get in the context, Jesus is answering this question. When you hear of these things, don't think it is God doing it. Don't think it is the end of the world. This is actually normal life east of Eden. In other words, um, the, the original sin of Adam and Eve, which perpetuated itself through humanity, has just done its course on the world. And things are, in a sense, deteriorating, and God is subverting that deterioration with his kingdom, and all things will be made new. But east of Eden, until God's kingdom has fully come, there, there is a fight. There is a, a, a real war that manifests itself in so many spiritual ways, so many physical ways. The deterioration of our earth and the disunity and the violence of mankind, it was alive then. And this is what Jesus says, the beginning of birth pains. This is imagery. The word birth pains is, uh, it's imagery that was used all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Um, And so it was very familiar to them. And and this this imagery, this imagery about birth pains, uh, you ask the question, birth pains to what? And and we'll explore this a little bit more later, but um, you know, like when you're giving birth, there, there's, I, I don't understand. <laughs> I just want to name that. But apparently, it's a painful process <laughs> that eventually gives birth to new life. So when you think of this idea of birth pains here, it's really important to note that God is birthing a new world, his kingdom on earth. That's why we pray. God, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer of Jesus. This is Jesus. They're going into a time of extreme turmoil. And remember, the gospel of Mark was actually written so that, through Peter's perspective, so that the persecuted church in Rome could have an anchor and a clear vision of Jesus. The first gospel, the earliest gospel, written to be read in one sitting and and, and passed to the next church. And so you picture them in that context, extreme persecution, reading this. This is Jesus injecting hope in a situation that seems despairing. This is not Jesus trying to swirl up more fear. And how often with this kind of stuff do you have this sense that more fear is getting swirled up? This is actually a message of hope. That God is, these are birth pains. This is not the end. This is the beginning of something new. Now verses nine through 13. Look in the Bible. Here's what it says. It goes on like this. You must be on your guard 
There it is, another warning. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues on account of me. You will stand before governors and kings and, you, and, and as witnesses to them as the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And whenever you are arrested and brought on trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit uh, speaking. Did I read them all? There are a couple more. Oh yeah, there is, right? Yeah, okay, yeah, sorry, sorry. Brother will betray brother to death and father uh, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Okay. Um, Now, this is the second warning. Jesus says, be on your guard. This idea is to see and actually understand what's going on. There is an earthly perspective. There is a heavenly perspective as well. And God invites us into a bigger perspective than just the chaos that's happening right in front of us. Why? Why is there this warning? Here's, here's this warning. And you can see the context is the first century. Jesus is talking about synagogues and being flogged and, and things like that. You can see, like, this is the first century. Roman courts that Jesus is talking about, they will be, the followers of Jesus in the first century will be singled out and persecuted because of Jesus. And millions of Christians were killed, uh, millions, over the first 300 years of the church. And in this case, they think about 10% of the Roman Empire was put to death um, because of people proclaiming to be followers of Jesus. And, And here's a question that's a beautiful apologetic for our faith. How in the world with this much death are we here today in Minnesota at the birth of the church? How fragile it must have been. They didn't have all their theological ducks in a row and, and their programs and their, and their, you know, all their stuff put in place. They didn't have like all that figured out. Yeah, those are containers, right? I mean, this, this, unf- this unfolding kingdom of God on earth, it can't be stopped. And, and we'll see more of that in a minute. Christians were hated by Rome, Romans, but Christians were also hated by Jewish people. And so let's just lean into this for just a moment. Um, Christians were, in, in this case, as we move throughout the first century, cr- Christians were hated by Romans because Christians said Jesus is Lord, which was a title that was used for the Roman Caesar. So you've committed treason. There was already a growing tension towards the, towards the Jewish nation as a whole. And so in, in the midst of all that tension, Violence was already breaking out. Um, Christians were targeted by Romans. And then Jewish people, uh, which have a nature um, in the first century, especially of being very nationalistic. Uh, and um, they, they actually, in this time frame, killed collaborators with Rome. In fact, um, early Christians embraced the nonviolent teachings and posture of Jesus. And, and here's what that did. Uh, because Christians would not pick up arms and fight against the Romans, they were looked at as, um, by the Jewish nation as collaborators with Rome. And so now all of a sudden you have like Romans who are killing, who are k- killing Christians and you have Jewish, the Jewish nation that are killing, targeting and killing Christians as well. And it, it actually says that, um, that they were flogged in the synagogues and, and being flogged is being beaten to an inch of your life. It was 39 times, um, a, a bunch on your chest and a bunch on your back fl- flogged in a synagogue and, and, and sort of the sneaky betrayal of this whole thing. As synagogues were set up to be places of mercy and love. And historically, it's, it's thought that the separation between the Christian church and the synagogue was because of this. If you read the book of Acts, you, you just read like the church did life in the synagogues. But actually, the nonviolent posture of, of early Christians in, in this time frame um, who weren't willing to, to wield violence and, and power over is what created the separation between the synagogue and the, and the church. And now, in a sense, um, this, 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 we don't, we don't hear about those worlds coming together in the same way. And I know we're in a totally different age than we were, obviously, then. The point of, the point of this is um, Christians were handed over to the Roman systems and, 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 and killed. And, and, and the point of this whole thing is that 
in your darkest moment, Jesus is setting this up. In your darkest moment, the Holy Spirit will be with you and the Holy Spirit will give you words. And then it says in verse 13, which we already read, it said, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When it's talking about the end here, it's not talking about the end of all things. In this particular case and context, it's talking about the end of a specific season of unrest. And so, now we, are you with me? <sighs> all right, verse 14. Whew. Everybody sit up straight. Let's do this. Here's what it says, verse 14. When you see, this is, this is crazy. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, I feel like I have to change my voice. Um, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. I, I feel like when I was, re- when I was studying that, I, I was like, the abomination that causes desolation would be a great name for a Marvel villain. That's the first thing I thought. Um, the, what I want to point out, though, that Jesus is doing here, it's really important. This is actually uh, a quote from the prophet Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. And there's a prophecy here that's really important to note to understand the context of what's happening. It was a prophecy about a pagan king a few hundred years before Jesus who desecrated the temple. This king invaded uh, Jerusalem and actually brought a pig onto the temple altar. And you don't do that in a Jewish temple. And killed the pig uh, to pagan gods and drank the blood. And this is considered, and Daniel writes about it, um, the abomination that causes desolation. In other words, this is an abominable act. Um, it's, it's a desolate thing that happened right in the temple of, of God that, that was just against all sorts of Jewish laws. And so here is what Jesus is saying uh, as, as much as that we can catch on to based on history, that something like that will happen again in the temple. And what's interesting, when this King Titus, or General Titus, in, invaded the temple, um, General Titus did just that, sacrificed to pagan gods on the temple altar and had plans to build a statue of himself right in the middle of the Lord's temple. And so we have a, a mark in history that, that we can say, uh, like Jesus is, is pointing to things that would, that would take place. And the point here is this. When you, when you see this kind of desolating event, run. Run. And that's such an odd thing to say, run. And, and this is, there is a time to stay. There's a time to die for your faith. There's a time to run. And, and, and this is a really interesting context. Is, and I'm not gonna peel back. I'm not... It's, I think it's like impossible to peel back all the historical layers here because figuring out what connects to what is so tricky throughout history. But as we, as we will see soon, um, the level of evil that comes in this time in history is unprecedented in the history of mankind. It is unprecedented. And you might be like, wait, I can think of a lot of evil things that have happened. Yeah, we'll, we'll move into that in a moment. Verse 15 through 16, it says this. Let no, no one on the housetop go down to enter the house to take anything out. Let no one on the field go back to get their cloak. And this is weird. When Jesus is talking this language, it's hard to understand what it is. How many of you hang out on the, your roofs? Anybody? You, you just don't, right? It's just not healthy. They had flat roofs back then. They did a lot of chores, a lot of, uh, and some of you might have that, but they did a lot of work on top of their roofs. And all Jesus is doing is creating a sense of urgency, like, if you see this coming, don't pack up your stuff. Just go. Or if you're in the field, which they would take, in the Middle East, they would take off their outer garment. They would set it so they could, they work. Like, if you see this coming, he's creating imagery of urgency. Don't pick up your coat. Just, just go. Um, and so he's, he's casting a vision of, of urgency here. And then it goes on to say in verse 17 through 18, it says this. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women, nursing mothers, Pray that this will not take place in winter. And again, Jesus is, is, is casting a vision of, of deep darkness. Obviously, it is hard to travel as a, a pregnant woman uh, or nursing a child. Um, in the winter, is especially hard, as we know better than they do here. Um, just want to point that out. Um, Jesus is painting a picture of deep darkness. And we move on to verse 19. Because those 
Because those will be days of distress, unequal from the beginning when God created the world until now, not even to be equaled again. And it's important to note this because sometimes we think what we're living in is as chaotic as it's ever been. Um, but this is considered a massacre unlike anything the world has ever seen, actually. Jerusalem fell uh, to the Roman siege. Um, they, uh, so David McKinnon, a theologian, uh, put it like this. Jerusalem fell to the Roman siege of Titus and suffered atrocities that exceeded the Holocaust in comparative numbers and gruesome details. The first century historian Josephus writes about this, that um, just through that siege, that, that short time, that millions of, of inhabitants died by crucifixion, sword, famine, burned, uh, killed by lions, starving people became cannibals and were eating each other. Um, the history books tell a story of this dark, dark time, and then in the crown jewel, this temple was destroyed in the process. And, and here, if you're still with me, here, God's call is to nonviolent love of enemies. So when this day comes, don't fight. Run. Our allegiance, we, we have this allegiance as followers of Jesus to the kingdom of God before any nation. And so the shadow of death um, in this area was not just over Jerusalem. It was actually over the whole ancient Mediterranean area. It was a very dark time in, in, in human history. And the point is this, the first century was a scary time to be alive. All hell, I believe, when I read the text, when I look at human history, all hell was breaking loose to destroy the church in the first century. It almost feels like, I just got this image while I was reading and thinking about this, like the Hoover Dam, like it's like just like breaking open, just to warring, darkness swirling. Um, and, and it's like when Jesus was born, we see a, a level of darkness swirl up around the birth of Jesus with the genocide that took place. And now, now the church is being born in the first century. You can feel darkness swirl. And, and, and I just wanna point out that with that, with that happening then, here we are today in uh, and, and, and the church. There are more followers of Jesus than ever before. And, and it's just wild to think what, what the church has had to overcome. And all you can do is point to the power of the Spirit working through humans. Wow. Are you with me, church family? Verse 20 says this. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here. In God's mercy, God intervened on behalf of the elect. And when you hear the word elect, it's less of a technical term and more of a Jewish way of saying God's real, true Israel, God's people. And then we move on to verse 21 through 23. It says, Jesus continues, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there, there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard, as warning three. I have, I have told you everything ahead of time. Be on your guard. See, understand what's happening. Many will step into the chaos and claim to be of God. And, and nothing's new. Many will step into the, into the chaos as a voice or a prophet of God. Many people will, and many will be, um, will be led astray. And I, I think... I think about us as a church and how even how counterculture it is to teach on 31 verses from Mark chapter 13 because we're so used to like sound bites. Just get to the point, give it to me so I can go, right? And we just, we scroll and we go through and we gather information and it's forming us. All these voices, you know when you scroll through like stories and things like that, you don't pick out what you're taking in. And, and, and all while, oh, that's good. Like our, we're being formed. And I just think now in history, more than ever before, like theology is like pieced together in sound bites and YouTube videos and this article and that article. And, and, but what is it to study the scriptures in the midst of community and really take time, really take time? Because there's so much out there, if it gets a hold of our soul, it can, it can lead us astray. And here's the crazy thing about being deceived. We don't even know it. That's why they call it a blind spot. We can't see it. Lord, 
What are my blind spots? Like, God, will you help? Will you help us? And so many will step into the chaos. And then it goes into verse 24 through 25. And we're moving, we're moving along. Whew, here's what it says. But in those days, following that distress, the, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And it's true that this passage of scripture here, um, if it's not given the context, uh, it, people take it literal and create all sorts of scenarios of like, man, someday the stars are gonna fall and destroy the world, nuclear bombs, and just thinking about applying, applying so many things to this portion of scripture here. And so let's look at it for a moment. Um, Jesus is quoting Isaiah, and, and this portion of Isaiah is, is considered, and there's much literature in scripture is considered apocalyptic, like of the apocalyptic genre. And when we think of that word apocalypse, many times we think of, oh, there it is, the end of the world. The word apocalypse actually means to uncover. There is a worldly perspective and there is a heavenly perspective. The word apocalypse in a biblical fashion is speaking of bringing a heaven's perspective to earth. And so it is language captured in imagery and metaphor. And part of that is like many times like just factual sound bites can't capture the magnitude. And so here's what happens. Uh, this type of literature invites our imagination. But what gives our imagination accountability is the context. We need imagination to read the scripture. But the context of scripture provides accountability so that we don't wander off. Um, how many of you are pretty imaginative? Like any daydreamers here? That's me. And, uh, and so he's quoting Isaiah. And the, in, in other words, this portion is actually not meant to be taken literal. And you might actually hear that and go, but I thought the Bible was to be taken literal. What are you saying? Let's do a little exercise for a moment here. Um, it actually depends on how you define literal. If literal means face value, then no. We'd actually, nobody takes the Bible at face value. You want me to prove it? I'm gonna prove it for you. Um, here's the examples that came to mind. When Jesus said, if your eye or hand causes you to sin, pluck it, pluck, or cut it off or, or pluck it out. If that were the case, we would show up to church looking like this. That's what came to mind. That's what, that's what came to mind. All right, so another portion of scripture that came to mind is this, and now I'm just having fun. Luke 19.40 says this, if they keep quiet, stones on the road will break out into cheers. And here's the image that came to my mind. Like that, right? So actually, um, reading the Bible this way makes it less true. Um, and, and remember that like one third of the Bible is poetry, one third, and many other genres built into that. And if by, but if by literal you mean that we're actually taking it as the author intended, then, then yes. Um, that, and, and in this case, this quote from Isaiah isn't talking about the end of the world. And stay with me here. The quote from Isaiah is talking about the end of a world. Um, so, it's a way of saying this. The destruction of the temple is earth-shaking. And we, we don't realize how earth-shaking it was. But let me try to invite us into that as best as I can, being removed from it as well, 2,000 years. The temple, when it was destroyed, what went away with it was also the priesthood and the sacrificial system that held together the Jewish faith. It, and it's still gone. The temple the priesthood, and the sacrificial system. So that, that begs a question, and the question is this, how do you, as a faithful Jewish person, obey the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, without those three things? Without the temple, without the priesthood, and without the sacrificial system. And the, and the answer to that is you can't. You can't obey it. In fact, Judaism has reinvented itself and only 2% consider, are, are considered orthodox. And I've been to Israel. If you've been there, you've, you've seen like an orthodox expression. But there is, it's, it's very different than it was back then. Why? Because the priesthood's gone. The sacrificial's gone. The sacrificial system's gone. And the temple's gone. 
They have the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall is considered, and, and, and many people from around the world, many Jewish people and others pray at that wall because it represented what used to be a temple. And so the point of this is the destruction of the temple was the end of a way of life. It was actually an end of a way of relating to God. And if you were a Jewish person in AD 70 and you didn't accept Christ, your world ended. And you had to figure out how to pick up the pieces and patch something together. This was so destructive. And in verse 26, it says this, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Again, the context. This apocalyptic quote from Daniel 7. Um, Jesus is saying, I am who Daniel said that I am. And it's not talking, it, you read Daniel, you see it's actually not talking about the return of Jesus to earth, but Jesus entering the throne of heaven. In fact, this passage here, it's like Jesus going from the shame to honor. In other words, when all of this happens, the church will continue and Jesus will be seen as, as who he said he was, a rabbi, but so much more, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The creator God in the flesh. And then verse 27, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And this is a fun little piece, just looking across this room and thinking about you online. Anyone here ever uh, do an ancestry search? Anybody ever do an ancestry? Some of you have? How many of you would actually say that you have, as well as you know, you have ancestry that um, leads you or your bloodline to another country? Raise your hand if that's you. Raise it. We just want to see. Look around all over this room. Are you kidding me? Like, we know this. We, we do know this. Uh, but here's what's interesting. Um, here we are in Minnesota. We are 6,177 miles and 2,000 years from where Jesus spoke these words. And just in this room is a melting pot of cultures from across the world. And this is a small fraction of Jesus' universal church. And it's just wild how true Jesus' words are here. And then verse 28 through 30 says this. Now learn this. We're just about done. Like, like three more verses. Yes. Now learn this lesson from a fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that its summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near it's right at your door. Truly I tell you, this generation, you hear these words? This generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. And here Jesus is on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Fig trees are everywhere and it's springtime. Great time to begin thinking about eating figs and he tells his 20-ish year old disciples and some younger, um, this will happen in your generation. In a biblical generation, it's considered 40 years and within 40 years, the temple that Jesus predicted will be brought to rubble. And then the last verse, heaven and earth, verse 31, will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And here's what came to mind, fastball down the middle. Here we are 2,000 years later studying the very words that Jesus said would not pass away. So, what does this mean for us today? Probably a lot of things. I hope that you read between the lines and maybe some stuff stood out to you and maybe there's tough questions you asked. Maybe there's tension that rose up in you. Maybe there's even like, you took like some theological differences that you're just wrestling. They're great. I believe that God has found, tension's not a bad thing. I think the spirit works in tense moments in our heart and, and maybe you sense some type of freedom through this. Uh, like God inviting you into um, something or some perspective that's freeing, great. Listen to that, lean into that. And let me share with you some things that came to mind as I prayed and thought about this. Here's what's fascinating about the, all 31 verses here. Jesus didn't actually answer the disciples' question. What? Jesus didn't give it specifics here. I gave you a lot of specifics. Jesus didn't go, okay, 80, 70, General Titus, and this is gonna happen. 
and da, 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 da. So before that happens, get out of here. Like, you know, didn't give, didn't give specifics. I think it's fascinating. Instead, Jesus's focus in this passage is the kind of people they were to be in the chaos. And here's what came to mind as I thought about the, our past few years together. If, if you're watching, we just had a multi-year masterclass on this. COVID, elections, riots, conspiracy theories, end times predicting, panic, anger, fear, division, and the temptation is to mirror the world and get consumed with all the details. Just try and figure it out. And here's what happens when we're trying to figure it out. We lose sight of the kind of people we're called to be. We lose sight of the mission of God, which Jesus names in this passage, that, that the gospel still must be preached to the ends of the world. And, and what goes when we get consumed with all that stuff? The mission goes. The, the, the incarnate Jesus living through us, like the fruits of the spirit get drowned out. And so that's the temptation. And Jesus' call in this, as I look at it, I just underline a few verses I like to write. It, it, Jesus says, do not be alarmed. And um, the gospel must first be preached and don't worry and stand firm. In other words, people of hope, be a people of hope not caught up in despair, a people of peace not caught up in conspiracy and perpetuating fear, being consumed about what's going around us, like the language you use, but being concerned but not consumed, um, standing firm, having a little bit of, of grit actually in our faith. I I read this um, right before a gathering today and I wanted to read it to you. And this is a little passage because sometimes we think, oh, persecution doesn't happen nowadays. But actually across the world, it's estimated that 60% of those who profess the name of Jesus are under persecution. And while the other 40% have the knowledge, wealth, and technology to proclaim the gospel to the nations, time and eternity will show and has shown that the persecuted minority even if undereducated, poor, and underprivileged, is winning the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I, I want to encourage us, even as we're doing missions week and we're going out to areas of the world that we're like, they're poor and we want to help, but can I just say this? We need their help to learn what it means to live by faith and have a little bit of grit. We don't experience persecution like that, we do have social stigma, and it's gonna be okay. And, and here's the thing that's hardest for me, being misunderstood, because of all the craziness that gets sucked up in the cultural vacuums, you're gonna be misunderstood. And instead of ripping the label off of a follower of Jesus or of Christianity, I wanna carry it. And I, and I'm, I, can't, I, I cannot reach the whole world on my own, but I have a circle of influence. My neighbors who in a world of lies, I can tell the truth to them. I can love them, I can repent to them when I mess up. I can be a human being that needs a savior, not savior. And so, so we stand firm and we're on mission, we're focused. And, and here's the last thing I'll say. Um, back to the birthing analogy. Giving birth is hard, apparently. Um, I remember when we were, Stephanie um, was giving birth to Ava and Sophia who are 16 and, um, and I was helping, I was there, I was helping. <laughs> I, had this, I had this moment where we're in an operating room because um, it's twins and it's high risk and I had this moment where I said out loud something that, um, I shouldn't have. And I said, you ever say something and you want to take them back? I said, my arm is tired. <laughs> I, just want to repent. I just want to repent. I just want to repent for that. Majority of the room was women, actually. There was um, one guy, anesthesiologist was a guy, and he punched me. <laughs> I, was, I thought I was going to die. Um, but here's what I want to say, and I think, I think this um, on a personal level, at least it met me and ministered to me. What follows um, birth pains in the metaphor of this passage, it's wrapped up in that metaphor of birth pains. 
is new life. And the invitation of Jesus, I believe, if you are at a time of pain, is to actually recontextualize your pain that you're going through. Uncertainty, pain, mental, emotional, physical, relational pain. Can we just pause for a second? I would imagine this room is saturated with points, if not pervasive pain. And can we contextualize it in the same metaphor as birth, birth pains? So I just wanna say, don't give up. In fact, um, see this invitation of Jesus to see from heaven's perspective that what looks like suffering is birth pains to new life. What looks like defeat, like Jesus' death on the cross, is actually victory. What looks like victory, like conquering Rome, is actually defeat. What looks like weakness, like loving your enemies peacefully, is actually strength. What looks strong in this world, like giant temples of gold, is actually weak. So the invitation is to see the world as Jesus sees it because that's the only true way of seeing. So worship team, you can come up and let's all across this place, let's stand together. Um, <clears throat> I know it's a lot to think about, it's a lot to take in. It is for me, uh, it, it really is. I was holding my breath a little bit um, just for the amount of stuff that we're going through. But uh, I really hope that the Holy Spirit lit something up in your heart in this. Um, and if you're experiencing some sort of tension, praise God and the Holy Spirit will use that as well. Experience plenty of my own when I go through stuff like this. Here's what we're gonna do. Um, there's an, an ancient human and actually heavenly practice of song. Uh, we know that surrounding the throne room of God is music. Um, it's built all through scriptures and poetry and songs and hymns all throughout the Bible. And we sing uh, more than to feel good or to enter into a, a snappy melody. <laughs> um, it is a way to bring our whole being into, living into, and declaring truth in community with each other. And so it's funny, um, Hunter not knowing where this message would go, I picked this song out and it's just perfect. And so I wanna encourage you, whether you need to take it in or you wanna sing it, um, sing it out, um, that we would actually live into the truths of these lyrics as an expression of our communal prayer. And, uh, and we're just gonna keep it simple and do that today. And so Jesus, here we are. I imagine just like you do, all sorts of seeds are planted in our heart, not from me, but from you. And, and uh, I just pray, God, the things that you want to grow, may they grow. The things you want to die, may they die. May this be a place of peace, a place of hope. May guilt or shame just drown out as we sing together. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, dear Jesus, as we link our voices and our hearts together, even our, our bodies and our lungs as we breathe the same through this time. Uh, Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will continue to be done here in Maple Grove and the surrounding communities that we represent as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.